Well, good morning, everybody. Um, welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Julie, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to give you a special welcome, especially if you're newer or just visiting with us. We're always just really glad to be able to worship together on Sunday mornings, uh, whether that's here in person or whether you're catching up with us online. Just want to give you a special welcome. So we are currently in a sermon series that we are calling Rebuilding Around Jesus. And what we're doing is we are trying to take a look at some of the basic beliefs of Christianity, the things that um, Christians have held on to for a long time and still believe. But what we're doing is trying to take a, a, a second look at them, maybe strip back some of the uh, cultural things that have kind of attached themselves to these beliefs, uh, maybe some of the things you've learned, maybe some negative experiences you've had, or even some positive ones trying to kind of pull some of that away just so that we can look at what does Scripture say, how does this actually center around Jesus himself. And as we do this, uh, we are taking questions. So if you haven't been with us this before, worshipped with us before, um, during the sermon series, if you go to our website, rescitychurch.org, right on that home page, if you scroll down a little bit, there should be a box that allows you to ask questions. So at any point in the message, if there is something that you want clarity on or something that you have a question on that I don't get to, please submit that. Um, and I will answer a couple after the message. And then if the rest of them that I don't get to, if there are more, um, we'll respond to in a video on YouTube later in the week. So today we are talking about something that Christians call the Great Commission. Um, and so it comes from a passage in Matthew 28. And so to get started, I want to read that passage. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will dive in. So Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Father, we uh, praise you for this church community that has gathered this morning to hear your word and to worship you with one another. I just ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and that we would leave with a clearer understanding of you and who you are and who you have commissioned us to be and called us to go out and what you've called us to go out and do. And pray all of this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so as always, uh, let's start by looking at the context of the scripture passage that I just read. This is the very last passage in the book of Matthew. And when you're looking at something from a literary or interpretive perspective, beginnings and endings have great importance. Um, and we've talked in the past about beginnings of books. Uh, during Advent, we often like to look at the first couple chapters of Matthew and of Luke. Uh, but this is actually the very end of it. It's kind of the wrapping it all up, putting a bow on it. Um, and that has a lot of weight when you think about it that way. Unfortunately, this is a passage that often just gets like, pulled out of any context and just read. And honestly, just on its own, it is good. It's still true, and it's still helpful to uh, look at and to learn from. But I think it adds a depth and a richness to it when you realize that this is the end of the 
book of Matthew. It's the end of the story that Matthew is telling. And if you look at the beginning and at the end, they actually both take place in the same location. So in the end, it says here, uh, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So we're back in Galilee, and if you go to the beginning of Matthew, when uh, Mary finds out that she's going to have Jesus, and she and Joseph are figuring out what that's going to look like, they're also in Galilee. They're living in a place called Nazareth, which I had to look up on a map because I'm not geographically... uh, the best. I honestly really struggle with reading maps. Uh, But Galilee is in, or Nazareth is in the region of Galilee. So we've kind of come full circle, and we're back even in the location where this story began. And this full circle effect sort of gives us the sense that Jesus's journey, or his mission, has kind of come to a close. He's ready to kind of commission his disciples and send them on their way. And if you think about it, Jesus leaves his home to travel and do his ministry. And in the book of Matthew, he starts in Galilee, which is in the northern region. I should have put a map up here so I could show you. He starts north, and then the rest of the story, slowly he makes his way south to Jerusalem. And that's where the conflict happens. That's where Jesus is crucified, where he dies and is buried. And then now that he is risen again, we end up back in Galilee. And that might seem like a small detail, but in, uh, in interpretation and in literary like, theory, beginnings and endings have a big impact. So this full circle effect reminds us or shows us that Jesus' mission is coming to a close. It's complete. And there's something that in storytelling, it's often referred to as the hero's journey, if you've ever heard of that. Um, If you pick pretty much any of your favorite Disney movies, you'll probably see this effect happen. But basically the idea is that the hero starts somewhere, goes off on a journey, learns something or accomplishes something, and then in the end, returns back home. So my favorite Disney movie growing up was Mulan. So you see that pattern, right? She starts at home and she goes off and has this adventure and comes back in the end. Um, Similar, uh, Moana might be a more current example of that. Um, Coco does that in in that movie as well. Even somewhat in Frozen, you see that, where they start at home and they go off and have this adventure and then come back to the beginning. And this, it shows some sense of completeness. And so I want to keep that in mind as we kind of continue to walk forward throughout the passage. So let's see how the disciples respond next. In verse 17, it says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And this is a verse that can sometimes trip people up a little bit because they're like, well, what are they doubting? Is, you know, did they not believe that Jesus had actually risen from the dead? And when you look at the, the wording and the translation, it might better be translated as uh, somewhere hesitant. And when you think about the context, again, reading this in context, not just as something that's pulled out, it makes sense that they might be responding with uncertainty. Uh, the last time they saw Jesus was at his death, his crucifixion. And it wasn't the best look for the disciples, we'll just say that. Uh, they desert Jesus. In his moment of need and in his moment of crisis, they kind of just peace out instead of following him and sticking with him. And then after that, in Matthew's account, when Jesus rises from the dead, he appears to the women that were with the disciples and says, 
Go quickly and tell the disciples that I have risen from the dead and I'm going ahead of them to Galilee. There you will see me. So the disciples get this message from the women who are claiming they saw Jesus rise from the dead. And they clearly believe something that they're saying because they go to Galilee. They're not like, okay, crazy women, you can just, you know, go sit in the corner or something. They're like, all right, if Jesus said this, we're going to go. So they clearly had some belief that Jesus was going to be there. And when they get there, they're like, okay, now what do we do? (laughs) This is a new situation. We've not been in relationship with Jesus in this way before. And probably also wondering, like, is he mad at us that we deserted him? Like, are we still cool? Like, is this going to be a confrontation moment where Jesus is going to, like, tell us how much we screwed up? I don't know. I'm imagining if it were me, that's how I would feel if I were to show up and see Jesus. And so this uncertainty or this doubt probably has more to do with how they felt or how they were unsure of what their relationship with Jesus was going to look like moving forward. And so right away, Jesus, it says, you know, it doesn't say much about how he responds to that. He doesn't address it necessarily, but it says that Jesus comes to them and says, and so you get this picture of maybe these uncertain disciples who are not totally sure and are a little bit, Um, you know, walking on eggshells around Jesus, and he comes to them, and so you get this picture of him moving forward towards them, him restoring the relationship, Uh, and right away he moves into giving them this commission, and so hopefully reassuring them that, like, we're good, we're still on mission here, this is still happening, nothing has been derailed because of my death or because of your uh, doubt in the past. And so let's look at what he says to them. Jesus, in verse 18, says, Uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So like I said, Jesus not only reassures them that like we're good, but he actually gives them a job to do. He says, this mission is still going forward and you are now a part of it. And I think with these verses, at least for me, when I see a verse that's like, okay, it's commanding me to do something, I'm like, all right, let's jump to the command. I'm going to figure out what is it that God wants me to do, and I'm going to focus on that. But I think our detriment is that when we do that, we miss the why before the command. Why is Jesus telling the disciples to do this? What is that going to look like uh, is something that needs to come after understanding why he is saying it. So he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he says, therefore. So we got to look at what's before the therefore, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the basis of this commission is that Jesus has ultimate authority and rule. Everything in the book of Matthew, right? We're talking about an ending here. Everything that's been going on in the entire book is fulfilled in this idea that Jesus has authority over everything. It's that full circle effect, like I was saying. We're bringing everything back to the beginning and kind of putting a a close on all of it. And many scholars actually look at these five verses in Matthew as the key to understanding the entire gospel of Matthew. And so when we look at it, we get to see a bunch of the ways that Jesus' authority over heaven and earth is a fulfillment of so many of the themes that we see coming up in the book of Matthew. So I'm going to give you some examples. 
in the very beginning of the book, when G- Joseph is told to name the baby Jesus because he will save us from our sins, right? We see that in the very beginning of Matthew. Now we've seen that is complete, and now Jesus has authority over everything. We see in the beginning that Joseph is also told Jesus' name will be, or he will be called Emmanuel or God with us. And now we see Jesus saying, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Uh, We're getting into the Advent season soon. We've got about a month before that starts. Uh, And in the Advent story, in the story of Jesus' birth, shortly after, the King Herod wants to kill Jesus because he's afraid that he's going to be some kind of rival king when he grows up. And now 30 years later, Jesus is killed, he rises again, and now he is king over everything. He has authority over all. In Jesus's ministry, right away in chapter four of Matthew, Jesus is tempted by Satan, and Satan says, worship me, and I'll give you everything. I'll give you authority over all the things. And we know that that wasn't really a possibility for Satan to be able to do that. And now Jesus is able to say, I have authority over heaven and earth, over everything, because I resisted that and I fulfilled my mission. Jesus talks all the time in his ministry about the kingdom of heaven coming, and now Jesus says, hey, it's here, it's happening. I have authority over all of these things. And because it's happening, because Jesus is truly king, because his kingdom is here, he wants his disciples to go out and tell other people about it. He isn't asking the disciples to go out and tell people, hey, this Jesus guy, he wants to be king, so if you could follow him and if you could vote for him so that he could become king, that would be really great, right? He's not out there campaigning. He's not telling them to go campaign for him. He's already king. He doesn't tell them, hey, I really want to be a big deal, so if you could go tell more people to follow me, then that would be great because then I can be the person who seems like they have authority over everything, He truly has authority over all because he is the real king. And he wants people to know that not so that he can benefit from it, but so that they can benefit from knowing him as king. I think it's easy sometimes to look at this and think, you know, doesn't that seem a little arrogant that Jesus, like, wants everyone to go tell people about him? Or, you know, like, God wanting to be glorified, like... Isn't that a little prideful that he wants it to be all about him? But I think the difference is that arrogant people are all about serving themselves, right? If you think about the most arrogant leaders in your time or in history that you can think of, they, all they really care is about what they want and how they can get it. But Jesus has proved he is the opposite of that type of leader. He's already demonstrated that he thinks about others over himself to the point that he's willing to come live as a human on earth, which we all know how difficult that is, when he could have stayed and been God, uh, not had to deal with all of the stuff that living on earth comes with. Uh, And yet he chose to come, and he chose to come not only to live among us, but then to die for us, to be a sacrifice for us so that we could be reconciled back to God. If that's, that's the most example you could think of of the opposite of arrogance, right? That is what true humility is, is being willing to give of yourself so much that you're willing to give your life for somebody else. So we've seen that Jesus is not an arrogant leader. He's someone who, he wants people to follow him for their benefit because he cares about them. Not, he doesn't want to benefit at the expense of other people. 
So knowing Jesus's character, we can look at his desire for others to know him and know that this is not an arrogant commission. It's a loving one. He wants everyone to know that he is the true savior and king and that only through following him will they find true life. And when they do, it'll be a life that's marked by love and by meaning. Scholar N.T. Wright says about this passage, she says, At the heart of many prophecies about the coming king, the Messiah, there were predictions that his rule would bring God's justice and peace to the whole world. And Matthew ends his gospel with Jesus commissioning his followers to go out and make disciples from every nation. This, it seems, is the way that the prophecies of the Messiah's worldwide rule are going to come true. So Jesus commissions his followers to go out to bring love, to bring justice, and to bring peace into the world through telling them about Jesus' love and his sacrifice for us. And when you look at this, this isn't a new mission. Like, this isn't something new that Jesus is like, hey, we're going to start something different now, and this is all going to be coming from me, and it's all going to be about what you're doing. From the very beginning, right, we talked, last time I was up here, I talked about Genesis. Like, from the very beginning of the story, God created us to bear his image, to showcase his characteristics, like love, peace, justice, in the world. And unfortunately, when sin entered the world, it made it that much harder for us to be able to do that, which is why Jesus came, to be able to represent God's image perfectly to the world, because he actually is God, so he can do that. He showed us what true love, justice, and peace look like in the way that he lived his life, in the way he interacted with people, in the way he conducted his ministry, and even in his death and in his resurrection. And now Jesus is commissioning us to go out and do the same. So we're just a part of something that's been started from the very beginning and has maybe had different um, iterations of what that looks like, but now we are a part of that as well. And I think a lot of time when people talk about the church, they might say like, oh, the church has a mission, or what's your church's mission? But I think maybe a more helpful way to think about it is that the mission has a church, right? The mission has been around from the very beginning, and now the disciples and ultimately us are being commissioned into it and have our part about bringing God's love and justice into the world. Even our mission statement as a church uh, at Res City, to see people, our city, and the world made new in Jesus, our Savior and King, it's not new. I'll give you a little uh, behind the scenes. This is not something unique that Joel and I like, were so incredible to come up with. This is something that's been around forever. And while we may be changing the words to make it feel um, like relevant to us or to understand it better from our perspective, from where we're coming from, it's the same mission that God has always had from the beginning and that has continued on through the disciples and now to us. Now, I'm going to guess that when I talk about the Great Commission and as I read this passage, Matthew 28, most of uh, our hang-ups or our baggage that comes with uh, understanding this doesn't actually have a whole lot to do with the passage and with uh, what Jesus is saying. I think a lot of our, our issues with the idea of the Great Commission and evangelism actually come more through uh, what it practically looks like. Maybe in the methodology, maybe your own experience or what you've seen done uh, in the past. And so if you're asking yourself the question, I don't really know what I think about this, isn't it kind of wrong to tell someone what to believe uh, or how does that even, what does that even look like, how does that work? 
you're definitely not the only one. Uh, a few years ago in 2019, Barna, who's a research group, did a big study on evangelism, and they found that 47% of practicing millennial Christians, so people who are committed to practicing their faith regularly, said it's wrong to evangelize. And the study didn't say why, but if I had to guess, my guess would be that it has something to do with our current culture that sort of has this idea of you can believe whatever you want and no one should be able to tell you any differently. Now, I think we've seen this idea challenged a little bit in the last five or so years with things like facts and alternative facts and misinformation and fake news, and that's a whole topic for another day. Uh, but I think that challenges our notion that believing whatever you want is, a, is always a good thing. Um, but I think it's still something that, that sticks with us and makes it hard for us to think about this idea of the Great Commission or, the, or about evangelism. But one of the interesting things about this study is that even though almost half of millennial Christians thought it's wrong to evangelize, 94% of believers in this study thought that Jesus is the best thing that could happen to another person. So it seems like, at least for many, it's not so much a problem with the message as it is a problem with the method. It's about how this message is being communicated. So we've lived through what I kind of, in my mind, think of as like the Billy Graham era, right? If you look at history, of, like recent history of evangelism and Christian um, communication, Billy Graham was an evangelist who hosted a lot of really big events, and a lot of people came to faith through him. And so those events, God clearly worked through them, right? I'm not here to judge those events. But I think as we look at our current climate now, Big events and hearing from people that you don't really know that well are not things that people are really looking for. It's not something that's going to get people really excited to, you know, check out this event and maybe check out who Jesus is and what Christianity is. And another thing that was very common in recent history that I think is maybe not the most effective thing anymore is that idea of a stranger coming up to you and sharing about something or being given a piece of paper that has some information about who Jesus is on it. How many of you first experienced evangelism that way or were taught to do evangelism that way, walking up to a stranger and talking with them? Yeah, lots of nodding. But as I uh, talked about in this research study, they've showed that in 2019, which is not that long ago, although a lot has changed in the last few years, 78% um, of people felt discouraged to check out Christianity by a conversation with a stranger on the street. And 73% felt discouraged to check out Christianity if they were given a tract or like a piece of paper that had information about Jesus. And so when we think, well, that's all evangelism is, or that's all I was ever taught about what evangelism is, and I can, make, I can understand why we're not interested in it, why it seems like something that would be wrong, would feel wrong to us, or something that we're not interested in doing. So I think it's helpful for us, again, as we pull back baggage and as we look at these things new and in a fresh way, it's helpful to look back at the passage again and say, see that nowhere does it say you have to make disciples by sharing a tract with a stranger on the street. <laughs> it says... Jesus, or it says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Nowhere does it say exactly how you need to do that. 
The message is the same, but I think the methodology changes over time as culture changes and as we change. And I think one thing we can do in our current cultural climate or the way that we live now is shift our mindset a little bit from the idea of evangelism as only proclamation to conversation. Again, coming from this Billy Graham era where evangelism was primarily, hey, let's have this big event and we'll tell you about Jesus, or hey, I'm going to invite this person to church where then they can hear about Jesus from the pastor or from someone on stage. But it's actually, I think, if we think about that and shift it a little bit, moving more to the idea of conversation. Again, in that same study, I know I'm using a lot of these stats, but I just think they're really fascinating. I think it helps us think through how we can maybe approach evangelism. Uh, In that same study, it said 78%, so basically the same amount that were discouraged by talking to a stranger, were encouraged to check out Christianity after a casual one-on-one conversation about it. And again, 74% were encouraged to check out Christianity after having a conversation with a group about it. So sharing the good news through conversation seems to be something that fits with our current cultural climate, but it's also something we saw Jesus do. When you read through the story of Matthew or or Luke or Mark, uh, you see that Jesus has conversations with people in his ministry all the time. Someone actually like counted, so I can't verify this, I didn't count it myself, but it's a, they said that Jesus asks other people 307 questions in the gospel, and in other conversations, he's asked 183 questions, and out of all of those, according to this person, guess how many he actually responds to directly? Out of 183, they say about eight. <laughs> he gives a direct answer to maybe eight of them. Out of over 100, Jesus knew how to create conversation. He listened, he asked questions, and yes, he did teach and he proclaimed about who he was and what that meant, but he did it in the context of still having space to talk with people and to dialogue with them. And I've said this in messages before, uh, but that research study shows that the number one thing that non-Christians are looking for in in a person that they want to talk about faith with is that that person would be someone who listens without judgment. So people are craving spaces to talk about these things. And honestly, I'm not sure that we've always done the best job of creating those spaces. So right now, most people are not going to repent and believe in Jesus because they go to a big event, because you invite them to church and they hear me or Joel or somebody else talk. But those things are probably more likely to happen in your backyard around a fire pit while you're talking about life and faith, or in a brewery over a beer, or at a park while you're watching your kids play. We need to be able to create conversation around these things and spaces where people feel like they can honestly ask questions and honestly be themselves. And now, I want to clarify, I'm not saying that we should, like, get rid of proclamation, right? If this, uh, like, switching over is a, if you think about it as a pendulum, like, uh, those are actually, like, a, those things with the beads. Is that actually what a pendulum is, or am I just making that up? I don't know. Anyways, pendulum swing is the idea that it goes from one side to the other side. And if we think about it in terms of history, as I've been saying, it's been heavy on the proclamation side. And I think... In church history, you see a lot of, when one thing is like not working anymore, everybody's like, all right, let's swing it all the way over here and only do this other thing. And then in 10 years, someone will swing it back. 
And that's not what we want to do. We want to be able to kind of bring it towards the conversation side, but not lose sight of the fact that Jesus did still proclaim about who he was and his coming kingdom and what it meant to follow him. He didn't shy away from that, even as he had space for conversation and questions with people. So maybe you're rethinking about evangelism, of thinking about doing it in a different way than you're used to. Maybe it's in your conversations with people, creating space for questions, but yet also still being able to share what you believe. I think we often shy away from doing that because of the cultural climate we're in and that this idea that if you disagree with someone, then you judge them. But I think when you're in relationship with someone and having those conversations, people want to know what you think. Conversations go two ways. And so I think being able to continue the proclamation side of it by just sharing about your own life, sharing about uh, church, sharing about your faith, sharing about Jesus uh, in a way that feels comfortable. And if you're like, no, I do not want to do that. Please do not make me talk about what I believe or what I think. I'm just going to push back a little bit and say, you already do this all the time. Maybe it's not about Jesus, but I guarantee you in the last week, you have proselytized, which is just a fancy word of trying to convince somebody about something you're excited about, about something. Whether it's your favorite TV show that you're watching right now, whether it's a restaurant you just went to that was so great, whether it's a parenting book that you just read that like changed your mindset. We do this all the time. And maybe it's not about faith, but it's something that is understood and it's part of our culture. And so I think you can probably think of people who have done this in ways that were helpful, right? Like, uh, take the example of composting. <laughs> I've had friends who were like, here's why composting is so great, and here's how you should do it, and this is like why it can make a difference for the environment. And that were actually encouraging and convinced me, like, yeah, I do want to start doing this. I've also had conversations with people about composting where I have left feeling like, oh my gosh, I am the worst person ever. I'm destroying the planet. And if I don't start doing this and do it right, right now, everything is going to fall apart. So you know the difference between what it's like when someone shares with zeal about something they're excited that's helpful and that's unhelpful. And I think we just need to be okay and feel comfortable bringing Jesus into those conversations as well. The same is true for sharing the good news of Jesus. Just because you learn to do it one way or you maybe disagree with ways you've seen it done in the past doesn't mean we should just throw it all out and not do it at all. I think another way that we need to rethink our current view of evangelism is that looking at Jesus, as he traveled around and did his ministry, he tended to both people's spiritual and their physical needs. Now, you might have had experiences in Christianity, if you've been in Christianity for a while, where certain groups or certain people overemphasize one side of that or the other. For me, I grew up in a mainline Presbyterian church, and we, to their credit, did a lot of serving, right? We went on mission trips where we built wheelchair ramps and repaired houses and did a lot of serving in the community, and I think that was all really great. I learned a lot from those experiences, uh, and I wouldn't change that. But we also didn't ever really talk about Jesus, which is a problem. And on the flip side, then when I got to college, my Christian experience was very spiritual, and it was only about talking about Jesus and about sharing Jesus with other people. But when we look at Jesus and his ministry, he's the best of both worlds. He does both. Both people's spiritual and physical needs are important to him, and he approaches everyone with both love and with truth. 
Obviously, this is easier for Jesus because he's God and he can understand exactly what people's needs are. But I think it's something that we need to consider and think about how we can do that in our own lives and in our own mission. I like how uh, Sheila Vassar, she's connected with Alpha, which is a Christian organization. But I like how she talks about this. She says, instead of trying to fit practicing evangelism or practicing hospitality into her week, she tries to think of herself as a hospitable person. So wherever she goes, she is trying to think, how can I show hospitality and evangelism to whoever I'm in contact with, wherever I am, whatever situation I come across? Not just, okay, I, I, you know, every week I'm going to make sure I spend one hour doing this, right? It's, it's part of who she is and how she tries to approach the world as she lives in it. And I think this is something that seems closer to me than other things to how Jesus lived his life. He took those things with him wherever he went. Even when he was trying to, you know, get away and take a break and people were following him, he still showed hospitality and love and truth to people as he went. And this is something that is challenging because if you think about that, that's a, it's something that you have to take with you all the time. It's not just something that you can be like, yeah, my church, you know, is involved in organizations that help, like, take care of physical needs for people. Or, you know, I, I go to community group on Wednesday nights, and that's my time where I'm, you know, doing, practicing this thing. But instead, it's something that you're doing yourself and bringing with you everywhere that you go. And if this feels overwhelming to you, uh, or just like, oh, this is just another thing now that I have to do, or I don't know how to do that, that feels like a big burden to put on yourself, I would ask you and encourage you to, again, start with Jesus. Because if you are not having real experiences with Jesus, you're going to have zero motivation to do any of this. It's going to feel like a burden. It's going to feel like something you don't want to do. Because ultimately, this has to mean something to you. Why do you share about your favorite restaurant or your favorite parenting book or your favorite TV show? It's because you had a good experience with it, because it's something you're excited about and that you actually spent time doing and experiencing. And I think the same goes for evangelism. We're not going to want to practice this or be people who are hospitable everywhere we go unless we've really experienced the love and truth of Jesus in our own lives, unless it's really made a difference for you. Tim Keller talks about it as if you're having breakthroughs. Unless you're having breakthroughs about who Jesus is and what that means in your life and have something that um, transforms you, then you're not going to have any interest in going out and sharing those things with other people. So if you're not excited, uh, there could be other reasons, but I would encourage you to start at least by asking yourself, am I personally excited about what Jesus is doing in the world and in my life? Do I see a need for this? Do I, have I actually experienced Jesus through spending time with him in prayer and in scripture, through being a part of the church, as Joel talked about last week, the school of discipleship that is the church. If you haven't experienced these things, it's going to be really hard to take those next steps to try to share them with other people. When it comes to evangelism, we have to start with Jesus in our own life. And when we do, here's what he says to us. He says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to go out and figure it out on their own and to make it work. He reassures them and us that he will be with them always. 
when it feels difficult to have conversations with people, when you feel sort of rejected by people after having a conversation with them, when it just feels awkward. Jesus is with us. When we aren't received well, we know that we are still secure in Jesus' love. When we feel uncomfortable, we know that Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit to empower us and that he is active and working in our own lives. In the book of Matthew, scholars have pointed out that this end, uh, this last verse of the book, the surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, they've pointed out how this scene, and this verse in particular, resembles a lot of the, what they would call commissioning narratives in the Old Testament. So if you read the Old Testament, you see these times where God has people that he's chosen to go out and continue on this mission or to lead certain people or to do certain things. And in some examples of those, uh, if you ever want to go and read them, are Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And when God does this, he's not just saying, okay, you got to go, like, get out of here and good luck. You better do a good job. He's saying, I am going to be with you. It's an act of reassurance. And it, reminding them also that there's really no point in trying to do it on their own. Because without him, there will be no fruit. There will be no success. And so God has given us his spirit. He's promised to be with us until the very end of the age. Just like the promise that he gives Joshua, someone in the Old Testament, in chapter 1. In this story, uh, Moses, the current leader, has passed away. And now Joshua is given this task of leading God's people into the promised land. And understandably, Joshua seems a little uncertain about this, a little hesitant, uh, just like the disciples were. And God says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. You see the similarities there? The way that God comes to Joshua and he reassures him and he says, you can do this because I am with you. Not because you're great, but because I am great and I'm promising to be with you throughout it. It's the same thing we see here with the disciples. He comes to them, he reassures them, even though they have failed and screwed up in the past, he says, I'm still with you, I still love you, I forgive you, and I'm commissioning you to be a part of this mission. And that's our hope. As we can think about what it looks like for us to live that out, we come back to Jesus. Him being with us through the Holy Spirit, that's our hope, that's our power to do anything, to accomplish anything, It's our motivation, it's our why to continue moving forward, to remember that God is with us, that Jesus already has all authority, and now we get to go out and share that love and that justice and peace with the rest of the world. I'm going to pray, and then we will take some questions. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge your authority over everything, and we praise you for the sacrifice that you had to make with your life in order to make that happen in order to reconcile us to you and then to send us out in this mission of reconciliation, to bring other people back to you um, and, and to share your love and your truth with others wherever we go. So Lord, please give us courage to do that. Be present with us as you've promised. Help us to trust in your promise that you will be with us always to the very end of the age. Amen. All right. Any questions? We do have some questions, yeah. Uh, as always, it's hard to kind of pick which ones we want to do for here, but don't forget, we'll, we'll put a video out later. Uh, 
trying to respond to the rest of them. Um, so yeah, I was trying to pick which, which ones were best. There were some good ones around, um, you know, questions people have around some of the, you know, hard questions around that, that you often hear around like the reliability of scripture um, and different things like that. Uh, but maybe we'll get to some of those in the video because um, I think some of these are, are really good for what you kind of ended with. So um, at Res City, what are the best opportunities to invite others to have the conversation? I know several non-believers who wouldn't darken the door of church or even a backyard community group. I feel like I'm the only believer in some people's lives. Singular conversations with one person don't seem like enough. It takes many conversations from other confident believers to encourage conversations. So how, yeah. can, uh, you know, how can we as a church sort of help people out like that? Yeah, I love this. I think you're totally right, right? It, it takes a lot of conversations with many people to be able to often... <laughs> Not always. Sometimes God just works, and it's amazing. But sometimes it takes uh, longer than that or more um, times and, and relationships to see change happen. And so I would encourage you to actually just invite those friends over with other Christian friends. It doesn't have to be a church event. I would encourage you just to do this. I, a way I like to do it is just like, okay, I'm going to have some people over for you know, bonfire, the Super Bowl, or, you know, whatever it is. And then when you do that, invite some of your Christian friends and invite some of your non-Christian friends and then facilitate relationship there. It's, I think a lot of times we overthink these things. It's actually just as easy as creating those connections, introducing people, um, creating spaces where people can get to know one another. Um, and you can do those at church community events, like Friendsgivings or whatever. I, I think a lot of people are craving community. They really are lonely. They're really looking for relationships. And so I'd always encourage you to invite people to those types of events where there's not an agenda. It's just hanging out and getting to know other people. But you can also just do it on your own in your own life. If you're having friends over, mix your friend groups. I know it feels weird. I always feel like I'm like back in middle school when I'm like, I had my like dance friends because I used to do dance at a studio. And then I had my church friends and I had my school friends. And when you had birthday parties, you're like, do I invite them all? Is that going to be weird? But I think in our normal life, it's not weird. We're all adults. I think it, people are excited to meet one another and, and to have community. So that's what I would encourage you to do. Yeah. And like you said, like so many people, like one of the, you know, there's so much loneliness. There's a lot of statistics yeah. around loneliness for people. And a lot of the, uh, you know, things like despair and depression are higher among people who are not connected to the church. There's a ton of data around that. Mm -hmm. um, and so people are looking to make friends and join friend groups. And so we have something really cool as being a part of a church that people are, they're not objecting to that. And so yeah. don't be afraid to, to let them in on that. So, all right. Um, so I'm paraphrasing this one a little bit because I asked uh, a little bit of a specific question around this, but I think the larger question is a good one. Um, so what do you do? So this is a bit of a paraphrase, but um, what do you do when you're having a conversation with a non-Christian, um, so, someone you're friends with maybe, who know, who's, at least seems to know a lot more about something than you do? About like the, They give the example of the formation of the Bible. Like this person is, you know, uh, seems to know a lot about how we, we got to have the Bible. Um, and, and so anyway, but it, makes, it can make us feel sometimes like maybe a challenge to repent and believe or to follow Jesus feels anti-intellectual intellectual and uh, uninformed, and they end with help. Yeah. So what, what do you do, you yeah, know, just generally a, in that situation, maybe? Yeah, it's a good question. I think one of the things that um, we've seen in our current culture is what some people call, like, the death of expertise in terms of, like, 
you know, again, that shift from proclamation to conversation. In proclamation, there's like one person who's the expert and who is sharing and saying, here, let me tell you about Jesus. Here are these things you don't know, and I'm going to tell you about it so you can, you can know, right? I'm going to teach you. Whereas now, everybody has access to the internet and lots of information. And so the idea of any one person being the expert is hard. And even if you might know more than someone, they're not going to view you as the expert because that's just not how our culture really does things anymore. And so I think like letting go of some of that for yourself of like, I don't have to be the expert in these conversations can be helpful. And then I think, you know, engaging in those questions. And if you don't know the answer, say, I don't actually know the answer to that. Can we like continue talking about it? I want to talk to some other people or hey, you know, I have a friend who's really into this. Could Maybe we could get together with them and we could talk with them about it. Or, you know, I'm going to look into finding a podcast or a book or a resource, and then we should both look at it and talk about it together. And they can do the same, right? I would encourage you, like, if you want them to listen to you, you better be willing to listen to them too. And so being able to hear from them, and if they have a resource they want to share with you, being willing to engage with that too, I think can be really helpful. Again, just seeing it more as a conversation, I think... The goal of a lot of evangelistic efforts in the last era have been like, get the win, right? Like convince them, sell them, and then write it down as a number, like another check for you. You, you converted another person. And I just think we need to let go of some of that and be willing to, to be open to the fact that the spirit works in ways that we don't understand. And maybe you thought that conversation went terribly, but God is still at work and further conversations might continue to work in their heart and in their lives that you don't even realize it. Yeah, and I would just add, too, like, never forget, um, no, like, just because, like, maybe what you're saying doesn't seem 100% coherent to them or they can pick holes in it, but, like, never underestimate the value of, like, a coherent life, like, Mm -hmm. to them. Like, if they look at you and they say, like, okay, this person believes this, and I just see in their life that they're different, and, like, they have, they treat me well and respect and everybody, like, I mean, that, that goes a lot further than I think we tend to realize it does. Um, so. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, again, takes time. So it's, a, it's, a, it's the long game. We're playing the long game here. Uh, this is definitely not a short adventure or, or short venture. It's not going to happen quickly, usually. Again, sometimes God works but in different ways. But for the most part right now, it's the long game. All right, maybe one more here. Um, it's kind of a two-part question, I guess. But you can kind of take as much as you want, but um, should we evangelize, should we see Christian groups who maybe don't at least seem to be living with Jesus alone as their center, um, should we see them as worth evangelizing too? And then the other question is uh, around Jewish people, like they have a covenant with God, um, uh, you know, or they have, you know, they have a connection to God as well, like how do, how do we treat them as well in terms of evangelism? Yeah. I mean, again, I think always treating everybody with respect and understanding that, you know, they may not have the same viewpoint as you, but not coming in so much with the, like, I'm right and you're wrong and I'm going to tell you why. Uh, I think getting, pulling back some of that is, like, probably the first step in those interactions. And then I think it's good to engage with people. I think we're seeing as culture shifts, we're going to see a lot of people who maybe would have called themselves Christians previously are going to start to be like, huh, I don't know, you know, like, maybe they don't go to church, maybe they're not involved, maybe they don't even know who Jesus is, but they grew up calling themselves a Christian, or their parents called themselves Christians, and so they still kind of identify with that, and I think we're going to see a lot more of those people um, 
who maybe call themselves Christians but don't actually know Jesus and don't live and follow him in, in such a way. And so, yeah, I think evangelizing to them, talking with them, having conversations with them about, like, so you say you're a Christian, like, what does that mean to you? And, you know, asking follow-up questions about that is great. I would encourage that. Um, I grew up thinking I was a Christian. I would have called myself a Christian. I didn't really understand who Jesus was, so I needed someone to come and talk to me about that, so I would encourage that. Uh, and then with people who are, who are practicing Judaism, I think it's similar. Again, don't come in with the I'm right, you're wrong attitude, but saying, you know, talking about certain things in the Old Testament that maybe to you show that there is a coming Messiah and that I, that is Jesus and saying, like, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Like, really take an interest in learning from them and, and trying to understand their perspective before just jumping in and, and sharing yours. But then, yeah, again, conversation, just being willing to ask questions and listen and dialogue within that, I think, is important and helpful. Awesome. All right, thank you guys. You guys have great questions. Seriously, this has been like, uh, I've learned a ton just from hearing all of your questions over the series. So thank you for, for participating in that.